Hello and welcome to Dublux Presents. Uh, on today's episode, I'm speaking with my good friend Ganesh. Hey. Um, we met downtown at Jobot, and Ganesh is a doctor of epilepsy? Yes, yes. So, like, I am a neurologist, and I'm doing my fellowship right now in epilepsy, which is basically a seizure disorder, having recurrent seizures, and uh, finishing that up in June. And, um, yeah, that's what I do. It's fun stuff. It has, um, you know, a lot of work, but, uh, you know, in respect to, like, we read brain waves, and then we see patients in clinic, and then we try to help decide what's the most appropriate care for them. So that's what I do. And when we're not doing that, we're solving crossword puzzles. We are solving crossword puzzles. We just now finished a Saturday today. We did a good job with our Shout friend Jesse. Jess. Yeah. Team crossword over at JoeBot. Yeah, yeah. We did it in 15 minutes faster than our normal time. That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. So what were we just talking about before we uh, decided to, to hit record? I think we were... You remember? I want you to tell me how how did you come about doing this? <laughs> okay, um, so I uh, went to school originally for um, media and social change, information theory, and and things of that ilk. I have a BLA. So one of the classes that hit me the hardest in my undergrad work was a class taught by Professor Bob Devine. Um, and he had been a major player in the founding of the Manhattan Neighborhood Network, which is the largest public uh, access channel or series of channels oh. in the country. And nice. Bob was a firm believer that the revolution or social change or any kind of meaningful impact would never occur through violent means but that in the age of information one who had agency and the and, and agency is defined as the ability to act right and and create outcomes um desired outcomes and this is a long answer go for it i'm i want to know so and feel free to interrupt and ask follow up questions right because i'm going to try to paint with broad strokes what what this was all about because the short answer is I learned about it in college, right? I took some classes in audio production, a little bit of audio engineering, recorded some of my friends rapping, and, uh, and that's how I learned how to do some of the compressors and setting up the microphones and stuff. I'm by no means an audio engineer, definitely an amateur, yeah. but I've always been tech-minded, and so creating these kind of little solutions like this Couch Lab was fun for me. But going back to Bob's class, Bob said that in the information age, you developed agency through your ability, you could gauge your power by your ability to answer two questions. One was, are you the source of information about yourself? And the other was, can you get accurate answers to the questions you ask about the world around you? So are you the, are you the source of information and are you able to get information? So we could unpack that a little bit more if you want. So um, how do you think that you most competently acquire information? So I don't know where I lie in the spectrum, right? But you could look at the, so you're asking about the second question. Yeah. 
right? And the second question again is, to what degree can you get accurate answers to the questions you ask? And if we were to look at the two extremes of that, from like zero to 100, right? Then zero would be someone who doesn't have access to the internet, who doesn't have access to media sources or only has access to one media source. My go-to example is a refugee in a UN camp somewhere in Southern Africa or something, right? Um, And that person has next to no ability to find out what's going on, like even two miles over. They have no smartphone. They're just listening to the camp radio. All of the information that they have comes from a single source. It's not verifiable. And they are at the mercy of the world. Um, The opposite end of that spectrum would be somebody like, you know, obviously the NSA or an intelligence agency, which has multi-spectrum, multi-band intelligence gathering capabilities. Or in the civilian world, say somebody who runs a major news yeah. network, right? Where they could send journalists somewhere. They could they could hire somebody to go boots on the ground and figure it out or get some analysts to go do the research. So obviously I'm not on either end of that spectrum, but as an informed member of the internet using class with some background in, you know, having read a couple books about journalism or like I have... I'd say better than average ability to answer the questions that I ask up to a point. I think the biggest challenge we face is that source material, you know, when we rely on the internet is, is less and less confirmable. Yeah. We kind of live in this gray space of alternative facts. People don't agree on the objective data that they're basing their worldview upon. Yeah, I feel like, uh, so like in our world, like we use like a lot of evidence, we use evidence-based medicine. That's what medicine's become now. But even in that realm, um, how someone has run a specific trial uh, determines how, um, or if you respect the person that ran the trial, in essence, um, if you're going to believe their data or if you're going to take, take that and make it into your own practice. So, like, I feel like um, sometimes I'll read something and I'm like, this is very well designed or this is poorly designed. And um, based on that, I feel like in conversations that I have with people about where what we know right now about treatment or whatever, um, that'll help guide me on, like, if I'm going to actually use that data to be make it into something I'm going to take or not take because there is a lot of information out there there's a lot of people that have done work both very nice and meticulous and some that are very sloppy and how they analyze the data like you can really take data in any way right and like misconstrue it or construe it in such a way that makes it seem a lot better a lot worse than it actually is so so is there so there's credibility in scientific research right is is there the degree of uncertainty, is that something you've seen grow over the years? Do you think that like back in the day, you know, uh, there was more integrity to research results or people were, were more adhering or is it always been, you know, a source of confusion or. So I think medicines come from like a way that like it used to be where this is how we used to do it. This is how we're doing it here at our institution. So this is the way that it's going to be. And you're taught under those people and those people might be great or might have great respect in, in the community. And because of that, that's just the way that you do things now. 
But nowadays, it's become that, and it may be it may be based in evidence, and it may not have based, been based on evidence. Before. Wait, so so in other words, when they say you know research coming out of John Hopkins, right? That's going to have a lot more weight than research coming out of some, let's say, community college in Arkansas. Or like Not China. to knock Arkansas or community college. Or like some university in China or something like that. There's okay. definitely a lot more of like, well, this person wrote this article. So this person we know based on them being a person that we respect because they, they, they held this position in our at our group meeting. So we, we, we think that they'll they'll put out good formulated research and and that's probably based partially on the fact that like they have conducted good meticulous things over time and created that that reputation for that to not um yeah so but i think a lot of it in the past used to be at least that well we just kind of think it's kind of like this and we'll try these things out and whatever works we know that that's probably the right way Mm. but nowadays people can use you know, double-blind, randomized placebo, and can c- control a, a trial in such a way that they limit the amount of variability. So they're only examining or trying to examine one thing, and then they're really good about picking out their limitations. And that allows for you to tailor your care or push medicine in a certain direction so that you're only using data, which I think to a certain extent has its faults and benefits i mean i think it's definitely beneficial to know where the data what data comes from and how to use it but i think at the end of the day patients are you tailor your patient your care to the patient right because that's their wants their needs that you need to meet and sometimes i think that's what the art of medicine is all about is knowing where the data is what evidence is available but then tailoring your care to what they want and I, I this this begs almost a tangent a little bit, right? Because I'm not sure all of our listeners understand double blind studies. Um, and while I don't really want to unpack that, I, I am because you can just Google, right? Like, what is a double blind study? But was that always the case? Was there was there a turning point in medical research, or where where does the this concept of because obviously you want good data, and and that goes back to you know the scientific revolution and sort of going away from revelation or um experience based to to experimental uh research but where do you know the origins of double blind studies or like where would, all that stuff came from i would be uh no i do not i just know that over the last 30 years about that has been the primary mode of how we've been approaching things okay so to come back to to our thread about you know validity of information or accuracy right as being a a valuable trait right it, it helps you answer that second question because if you're looking and and looking to benefit the patient right end goal right it decrease suffering the hippocratic oath you're trying to help people yeah and so if you've got bad data then you don't know if you're helping them, right? Or, or, or you could be potentially hurting them if you're, if you're working off of, you know, anecdotal, oh, well, somebody said taking a shot of gasoline will kill this tapeworm, right? Yeah. I heard that in my, <laughs> coming up, there's a kid who, like, I've got a tapeworm. Long story. Um, but, okay, so, so circling all the way back, we've got those first two questions. That's how I got into um, this idea, this, this, 
germ of an idea that we could develop agency um, through giving people access to the means to broadcast. And that, and that was, you know, in the early 2000s. And so that was before really the social media revolution kind of flipped that on its head by inundating um, the signal with noise. So now everyone, you know, your, your Twitter handle is your news agency, right? Your, mm-hmm. your Instagram feed is your entertainment channel. Everybody was craving celebrity, so everybody gets to be a celebrity now. The challenge, of course, becomes that with so many sources of information, you now no longer have that rigor, right? There's no rigor uh, in social media, yeah. right? And so everybody's now a source of information, and so you don't know. So you're, you're kind of algorithmically forced into that echo chamber. Nonetheless, um, my, my goal with this is twofold, as I, as I was telling you. One was to offer individuals a platform just to start getting a taste of, yes, I can have a public presence, uh, my voice matters, and I can go on the record speaking about the things I'm passionate about as a guest. Um, and that establishes credentials and credibility, and you can point people to an episode of a podcast you were on, you get better at getting interviewed or you know, framing yeah. an opinion. And then the second piece is, is there's this giant silent majority of reasonable, passionate creative people you know every person you walk on the street if you stopped with them in a coffee shop and actually asked them so who are you what are you passionate about what's going on what's your world reveals this deep tapestry and i think at least for me i'm sometimes under the bias right that like me and my friends are the only ones having interested interesting lives in this mass of sheeple and it's like no it's not really sheeple it's just that most people don't have an opportunity to express themselves. It's just the really passionate, you know, wackos on the fringe, right? Or, yeah. or, or just passionate people on the fringe who have something they really just absolutely need to talk about. Um, and so this conversation is very similar to the one we would have over coffee or, or yeah. you know, solving our crossword puzzle, but we have an opportunity to share it. And if people listen to it, ideally they recognize, they start broadening their horizons because they're now part of the conversation with us. You feel like, um, why do you think that, like, I guess in the sense that people are perceived, like, I feel like we all like value our, our knit group that we're in, you know, in general, like we, we have these people that we respect and we, as we meet people, we, we, we have this tendency to, you know, understand who they are, where they come from, their depth, like. I guess like where where do people where do where do we as individuals come off in a way that is kind of innate that like oh this person don't know them the the sheeple concept like where do you think that comes from just a cognitive bias I guess in my opinion right yeah. I think I think it's the way we evolved with tribal in group out group mentality yeah and I think the biggest opportunity for the species right for us collectively is to outgrow that i think that's our biggest challenge right now that we're faced with there's just in my mind like the challenge of the 21st century is twofold one it's can we start to think of the earth as a stakeholder and as common property and and outgrow the colonial idea that if you put a flag in it it's yours so like all the blueberries in this field are actually mine to exploit as as i see fit um and i'm not suggesting that we all have like shared property or do away with private property but but advance the idea of of the natural environment as a stakeholder in our economic practice, 
right? Yeah. It's a similar idea to like carbon credits or whatever, right? Like a, like a cap and trade system. That's not what you asked. <laughs> and then the second part is outgrowing our tribalism. Yeah, right. I, I think and, that's a big part of it. You know, people people talk about the new world order. Like, you know, it's the worst thing in the world. And maybe in some ways it is. But there's a lot of benefit to thinking of yourself as a human. And I meet people in various stages of tribalism in their own personal journey. Right. They they identify with their family and no one else. Or they identify with their city and no one else. Or they identify with other sports fans and no one else yeah. or they identify and it's like we have this innate desire to draw boundaries around a group in yeah. group out group those and boundaries so, tend to be pretty artificial in a way sometimes yeah yeah and the, and the, for sure right because on further examination you may discover common threads and all of a sudden oh you know you understand me buddy right like yeah. you get me you know um but it's through conversation that we go from them to us yeah right and so we need to have these conversations if we're ever going to outgrow the like well those guys over there they don't get it yeah right and i think the willingness to have those conversations has massive um like almost a ripple effect or a downstream cascading thing and maybe that's just you know standard progressive drivel but but i i really have seen a tremendous amount of value for myself and speaking with people who i don't agree with and then finding that through that conversation, we found a common ground, especially happens in the political area where you realize you have so much in common with people, not just the emotional hot, you know, red button issues that everybody debates about. Yeah, I feel like uh, so we all so I have this thought that I had a while ago and I actually have a tattoo of it that uh, one of our, Blake, uh, one of our friends gave me a tattoo of this. I've had this thought for a long time that we all start out at this as this point and as we go through life, we like gain vertices and that vertices is by meeting people, having experiences, kind of going off away from who we are as a solitary point to, to gain viewpoints, to, to grow in that sense, to go to a, a line, to a triangle, mm. to a square, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, the last figure is actually like a circle and a circle is an infinity amount of points. And in theory, this is like the quote God or whatever. This is an infinite omniscient type of being right something that has infinite amount of viewpoints and infinite way of seeing things because they are basically everyone or they've been in contact with everyone that's probably impossible in you know our current states to to be that person but our goal in life is to grow and gain as many vertices as we can to become as whole as we can is that something you value deeply i i I do i do i think that's like that's one of our purposes of being here is to um, to become as whole as we can be. Not that I'm saying that we're not whole to begin with, but to kind of discover through our interactions and our experiences to to understand where other people come from. So that like we may not always agree with that, but at least we have a a, a basic understanding so that we're able to like grow. I guess I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a great ideal um, and. I share that desire to meet more people and that and the value I derive as an individual from growing that network, right? The network of points that you're describing. So again, the visual metaphor that you used was you have the, the tabla rasa of you knowing no one, mm-hmm. right? Single point, knowing your parents, perhaps, right? Your primary caregivers. And then that expands as you go through life and you're, and you're, 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 filling in your map 
of data points and connections. And, and there's this dynamic relationship between you and other affecting you, giving you feedback and sort of like there's a parallel between that and neural networks growing and the interdependent connections that make yeah. higher thought possible where I heard you say we, and I, and I've definitely met people who don't want to meet any more people. Right. And I, and, and there's, I haven't read this book, but I think I might have to, there's somebody, cause it keeps coming back to me. I heard about it on a different podcast about this almost genetic propensity to be liberal or conservative. And I don't mean it in the political sense. I mean it in the inclusive versus exclusive. So some people like really want to change and some people really want things to stay the same. And it's almost like, I mean, they did it where they did like identical twins and they, and they followed the twins or they were adopted out. Like the, the guy tries to make a data driven case for, for this, this like some people want to be restrictive and say, no, this is us. And those are them. And it's not a bad thing because if you don't have that, then it just becomes this one big blurry mess and nobody can agree on anything because anything goes. If you ever try to decide with some friends on like where to go to dinner, yeah, you could yeah. imagine, right? Like if no one is decisive, then you can't figure out you where to go. go to dinner. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and everybody's like, it's all the same to me. And then, yeah. um, conversely, if you have like the, like, and, we'll just drop the Nazi word in here, right? If you got some like dinner Nazi and they're like, no, I only go to in and out burger. Right. And then like that person's not going to have a lot of friends because they're only able to go to this one restaurant every single time yeah. and they're inflexible about it. And so obviously it takes all of us working together, which I think is what's missing from this political shit show that we have in the States in 2020 right now. Right. Is this, is this understanding that like those two polls were meant to balance, right? You have to balance the, the the corporate competitiveness of free market ideology, which would just basically make everything, you know, competitive commodity race to the bottom versus this kind of collective, well, we have to have some function that that works for the collective interest. And those two are in a constant um, friction with one another. Yeah. Right. And so you have to have like, obviously the best legislation is some kind of bipartisan legislation and we're almost missing that middle. And so that was the maybe second point of the podcast to have that conversation. Yeah. Right. And to start to say, Hey, not everybody, you know, on the left or, or whatever, whatever label you want to throw and it doesn't tall people, short people, <laughs> right? Like happy people, sad people we have so much more in common and, and that's what we're missing. We're not talking about it. We're getting upset about the things on the outer edges. Because usually, I mean, a lot of people are going to have a lot in common. Uh, and then the differences that they have are very few, but they're differences that they take so um, deeply or so they get so frustrated by when someone else has a different opinion they just hear someone say something different, that one thing that really sets them off. And then they're just so, then they just kind of close off after that. Right. And now all of a sudden it's like, I don't think that you're a person. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the degree to which we will separate ourselves from somebody in the in-group. And if you think about, you know, the, the religious conflicts that have been going on for thousands of years in some places in the world, they're rooted in, you know, um, a, a 
disagreement about a clause in a religious text, right? Or attribution to a historical event. And like, that's enough to make them kill each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I say them because I, I, I don't consider myself there. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't identify as someone who would be willing to go that deep into a disagreement. Yeah. Um, but I recognize that that's the world we live in. So anyway, so I think that's our biggest like challenge in the 21st century, right? It's like, how do you cast that net wide enough? I think that with how technology is going towards, uh, I know that we were talking about like Neuralink earlier, but as, as we progress with the technology, like the internet was a big game changer, right? Now we can understand or start to understand based on watching videos of other people across the world or have reading their blogs or whatever. And then now we can start getting a sense of like, man, these people are just like me and they have the same type of emotional content that I do. They actually, they interact with each other. They, their homies interact the way that I interact with my homies. And now it's like, it, it changes, it, it really changes like how you view that other person. If you want to. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, <laughs> or you could, you know, leave a nasty comment, but, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I that, that that's another. That, I guess that's a thing too. Is that people people can be real mean about it when people are real open, and it's easy to be mean about it when people get real open about it, like with the comments and stuff. Yeah, like trolling or whatever. Like it's yeah. so easy for them to like just put a nasty thing out there, and for everyone to be like, "Oh, that guy's a that guy." Um, just be real derogatory, sure. and like because there's no consequence. You're not having a real so. But but back to your point, like you see it as a game changer because it's uh, a medium for, I guess, a massive exchange of information is the easiest way to put it, right? Yeah. Like our yeah. first method of communication, you know, before language, we don't really know, but like you could point at some things yeah. and then that was, only, somebody had to see you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what we were talking about. I'm going to come back to that. What led you to pursue medicine? And specifically, um, you know, the journey that led you to becoming a specialist in the treatment of seizures and epilepsy. Yeah, so um, I have been pretty interested in medicine my whole life because I was really good at science and math growing up. And uh, so I knew, and basically I was very interested in biology because, and basic sciences. So I started, I, in ninth grade I took a chemistry class pretty good at what I was doing and I ended up taking the next level was AP chemistry or whatever and then I, I was good at that and then I like okay well uh, what else I can do basic sciences was physics and then when I started doing the physics course and I combined it with this chemistry and the combination of both those things allowed me to introduce me to biology and which is which unlike chemistry and physics everything was basically a theory nothing was like definitive and it was that, that that type of relationship was kind of was really cool to me and then that was what life was like right it's a study of life and to me the next basic thing is like how do you impact life in a way that you are going to um, make things better for people for yourself how do you like live a good life in a way and i guess that's what led me into medicine um mm. yeah so then uh, after after like that whole uh, okay well that that was one thing and um you know i had um good parents that were really supportive and after i went to medical school i then i was like well i'm doing all this stuff i'm reading all these basic sciences great whatever that's really interesting i like learning about cellular processes whatever 
but man how do you get into an area where um, you're really like what's the great unknown i thought like kidneys it's just and gulls dialysis it's a filter it's a filter, filter, it's a filter. okay so let's figure that out um your heart man just fucking we're not talking shit by the way on on anybody who's studying kidneys yes no i mean everyone has their own sense of the <laughs> sense of place and then like hearts you know it's just pumps, right it's just big pumps and uh your lungs they're just ventilation systems right so you just need a ventilator essentially you can you can design a ventilator eventually but like the great unknown of who you are and what we are as people is this brain and its interaction with the external environment and i think that's like was like it was like an aha moment for me that like okay well i guess we're going into neurology now and then do you remember that was it was it an aha moment or was this a gradual realization for you well it was, it was i think more than an aha moment you're probably right it was more gradual because i know that as i went through each of these things in like my actual in medical school for like the pre-med the, yeah well in medical school like the part that was like um so so no, none of our room. listeners have been to medical school right let's oh, just assume that sorry you know, so they don't yeah know. of course so like there's like so you want to be a doctor so there's walk two, us through it. <laughs> two years of like uh what we call like just basic sciences so i okay and then there's two years of rotations in which you're going through specific eight week things, four weeks, eight, six week things where you, they're like expose you to certain areas. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was actually really interested in a lot of things. Um, but then going through each of them, I was like, man, I, could I, yeah, I'm interested in all this, but could I really do that for the rest of my life? So then mm-hmm. I was, so that's how I ended up. Um, I, got, I went through my neurology and when I went through neurology, I I was like, this is the one thing I could notice that I really want to do more of that. So I ended up doing an extra rotation in it. And then there's a couple things. I got to that thought process about, okay, now it's time for me to pick what I'm going to do. And during the third, going into the fourth year, my final year of med school, you have to make that determination. And that 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 thought crossed my mind, but also... Uh, there's a medication called TPA, uh, tis- tissue plasminogen, a- a- act, like an activator that basically is a clot buster. And uh, I saw someone with a stroke. Um, they couldn't speak. They couldn't move the right side of their body because the language is usually contained on the left side of the hemis- left hemisphere and it controls the right side of the body. And essentially, we pushed the medication in uh, and person started speaking again a little bit after that after we came back in 30 minutes they started speaking again started. was this in the course of your schoolwork yeah yeah and then they were also moving on the right the right side of their body again i was like man this is freaking amazing and uh that person was about to lose who they were right they were about to lose a lot of function wow about movement language those are important parts of who we are and um then i was like oh i'm gonna become a stroke neurologist i'm gonna become a neurologist and as I see strokes, I'm going to learn about our human condition because I'm going to see strokes in different places in the brain. And as I do that, I'm going to become this person that's like, you know, learning about the networks of the brain and how this affects our, pers- our pe- us as people. Mm. And so that's what got me into neurology. I was like, okay, sign me up. We're done. You're We're, hooked. Yeah. So I, and then like, I got to see people that actually had neurological diseases and it's a see it to believe it type of profession. Like, right. Like, so like, you get to like see people with Parkinson's disease or whatever, and then you get to like read about pill rolling tremors, resting tremors, and like being slow. But until you actually get to feel it, to see it, it's a completely different ball game. So like that's I, that's how that's how I fell in love. And you can localize things 
like figure out where things are coming from based on your exam. So like I think a combination of all that it was it, it was a gradual like it was a gradual aha moment. So so unpack for us as the layperson what is epilepsy? So epilepsy is having unprovoked recurrent seizures. So a seizure is essentially a lot of people think of it as a convulsion where you fall to the ground, you lose consciousness and you shake on the ground. And so, yeah, that's a seizure, but there are also seizures where people are completely aware throughout the whole experience. They might just feel numb on one side of their body, have flashes of light, or they might only be jerking on one side of their body, but can be completely aware. Is it, so, so that's the outward the visible outward. symptoms or the, or the perceived symptoms inside. What's causing that? I know that that's a loaded question, yeah. but at a base level, is something is happening in the brain that's making it act in a way that isn't what we would call normative function? Yeah, so usually the brain is like this desynchronized beast when it's open, when it's awake, meaning that um, neurons are firing, but they're not firing at the same time. They're firing... Uh, they a few like populations or something. Yeah, a few populations are firing here, and a few populations are firing here, but it's never completely synchronized. Okay. When things become highly synchronized or abnormally synchronized, uh, then all the nerve cells in a certain region or a network of regions is firing simultaneously oh. or activating simultaneously. That's a seizure. That's something oh. that that's that's when a seizure occurs. It's a hyper synchronized discharge in a certain population network a population of nerve cells or neurons and the neurons that are affected are there's a lining of the brain or an area of the brain called the gray matter the gray matter is where the neurons reside in so it's essentially that three to six layers of the brain that essentially um get kind of hijacked in a way or Mm -hmm. they have a, a network problem uh, that basically make them all fire simultaneously. And it's kind of almost in a sense that it can start in one place and it spreads. And as it spreads to the area, um, spreads to different areas in the brain, then the person can have different manifestations of that. Right. Depending on which network is affected, if it's yeah. your motor cortex or your memory or something like this. Exactly. So you were telling me a little bit how, you know, how medical science, Western medical science approaches the treatment of, uh, said seizures, right? Which result in the ongoing condition called epilepsy. And you said that there are two pathways to treatment. And you talked about how there are some medications that people take, yeah. right? And, and, and so there's a whole school of, of, of medicine and sort of a ongoing research development of medications yeah. that impact the way the way the brain is working. And then, you're very interested in this other area, which is, you know, the the approximately one third of patients who don't respond to the medication. Yep. And then you started, you kind of un, unloaded out this platter for me of like, hey, here's the things that we're doing for those folks. And that's, is that what your yeah, so focus I, is in? Yeah, I'm interested in, um, medi- I mean, anyone that goes into epilepsy, having unprovoked seizures, uh, studying that, we're... Two thirds of people, you can. The mainstay is always going to be medication for those people. But for a third of them, um, you're right. There's other options available, and because it's so much newer and so much more uh, options are becoming available, and it's kind of this new frontier for us. 
that's the most exciting thing that we do. That's where we spend 90% of our time doing essentially is because um, a lot of people, um, they'll never be, they'll be seizure free. So like, it's okay as long as they take their medication. So Mm -hmm. um, those specific devices or specific therapies that we're talking about are essentially if someone has a seizure coming from one spot in the brain, and it's not a spot that's going to control language or or motor function or vision or something like that. Um, then it may be safe to take out. Or if it's not a area that's dominantly controlling memory function or something like that, then it might be okay to take out. You mean like surgically remove a part of the brain? Yes, to basically go in, figure out this is the area where the seizures are coming from, or have a hypothesis, and... Um, create systems through multiple types of multimodal imaging function of blood flow and um, metabolism to see if this is an area where it's um, the seizures are coming from confirm it that are of our theory based on scalp electrodes um, scalp electrodes essentially detect electrical activity the electrical activity basically determines um, voltage differences in between electrodes and essentially, uh, you create a network, uh, like a system of how you record those things. And that's called EEG uh, or electroencephalogram. And essentially, you can um, use this to get a rough estimate of where things are at, a town, for example. So just to unpack, because I think very often in technical discussion, right, people just say EEG and then they, so electroencephalogram. So electro, because you're using electrical current or measuring. Measuring electrical current from the brain. And then encephalo, because... Encephalo means brain. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's Latin or something? Yeah. Okay. And then gram, of course, because you're creating a graph. Yeah. You're measuring it's, over it time. Is, it is a... Yeah. It, is, it basically measures voltage potentials or differences in voltage uh, over time. So it's a, it, it basically you read on a screen on a, let's just say on a computer screen, you're reading 10 to 15 seconds at a time. And then it's, you, you scroll through that time uh, each page is 10 seconds and you keep on scrolling through time to find abnormalities um, that would put someone at increased risk of having seizures. And so what that looks like, right, is if, if you were to imagine like a four point EEG, then you would have like a wire on your forehead, a wire on the back of your head, one on each side, and then you would just watch. Yeah. And, and you take a person who doesn't have seizures or a hundred or a thousand over time. And then you say, this is the baseline of a non-epileptic, uh, normal, uh, you know, brain activity. And then you would say, okay, now let's look at the difference and see, okay, this person's got these spikes reoccurring on the right side. That leads us to a clue, maybe the, the the affected network or the area that's starting this is happening in the right side. And then just now expand on that and you add more points and you yeah. also do blood flow. That is that is exactly right. And then okay. you can you can use more as you use more points, you get more of a zip code, essentially. So and because this voltage difference that we're getting uh, is a thousand fold less than what we're, what you can actually get from inside of the skull because with voltage and electricity things dissipate over t- space sure and a tissue so essentially the closer that you get by essentially drilling holes in the skull and then putting the electrodes in the skull you get a which, much better better idea 
but you can't. Like a microphone, right? Like same idea here, right? If I'm right up to the mic, the mic's across the room, it'll pick up something, but it won't have the same uh, resolution. Exactly, exactly. So you can, with, with that, you can get to deeper areas of the brain. So um, that's the last step that you'll do before, essentially someone's going to go to epilepsy surgery or get some type of epilepsy modulation. Let's just say the seizure is actually coming from two areas of the brain, mm-hmm. right? So you have two types of seizures and they're coming from different areas. Well, you can't just take out one area and then take out the other area. Well, because, especially because you can't put it back in also. Right? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a person that I respect that I train, I train under and he used to, he's, he says, how many parts of an apple can you, can you take out and still call it an apple? And so for those people, there's other types of therapy available. For example, there's like pacemakers that you can put inside and outside of the brain um, to deep parts of the brain. I think we were talking about deep brain stimulation earlier. So you can stimulate um, the anterior thalamus of the nucleus, which is involved with a lot of memory pathways. Mm-hmm. So um, seizures that involve the hippocampus, which is a deep area of the brain that's involved in memory and concentration. Um, you can essentially, um, that's one of the more common places for people to have seizures from. And if you, if you stimulate through this pacemaker device, to an area involved in the network, the thought is that you modulate the network, you change the network over time, so they're less likely to have seizures. Well, we know that people are less likely to have seizures. So I want to zoom back out a little bit, right? Um, again, thinking about you know the opportunity we have to educate people about some basic concepts. Um, I remember it was a big aha moment for me when somebody unwrapped the disease model and said, you, you know, we have this like, model for across all of medicine right which says like there are symptoms and the symptoms are and 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 correct me right or or expand on this for me if you would symptoms uh, we look at the symptoms we point to a defect in an organ and that's our diagnostic function and then we start thinking about how can we alleviate the root cause of the defect we treat the defect in the organ or system and then that becomes ultimately like the therapy Right. So there's this diagnosis, there's the experiment and research that goes into developing a treatment path, case studies to show that this treatment works, and then finally adoption or sort of like this is the protocol, right? Yeah. Protocol meaning a series of steps you take to address the defect that's causing the symptoms. And that whole like package is, you know, a huge, like, like if you, if you grok that as a mental concept, you can apply it to so many areas of life where you go, okay, here's symptoms. The symptoms follow a pattern, right? If this is the pattern and we, and we've communicated across humanity, right? Scientifically or otherwise, that this is a pattern, then maybe this is the root cause. And then here's what people do, right? And people talk about like how to become more efficient, how to be better in your relationships, how to show boundaries. And it's all really an application of this disease model. What do you think about that? So I think that, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that like the first step of any, change that we're going to make to identify a problem is to know that there's a problem and to observe that problem, right? Uh, and to observe that problem in, in sciences, you need to know the basic mechanics of why something occurs. Um, you may not ever know, like in epilepsy, for example, 50% of the time, we're never going to know why you had epilepsy. But at least if you understand that this is how this process or this this disease process works, like it's an excitation, so give it more inhibition, if you don't have that framework or concept, 
then you'll never be able to figure it out, right? And a lot of that work is kind of being done right now in ALS, for example. Like what's uh, ALS? Uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, or what's that? So it's um, sorry. So it, uh, we'll Google it. Go ahead. <laughs> so ALS is a is a basically a sent. It's like a, a fatal disease in which people have um, de- degeneration of their motor neurons. And and those are like movement cells, essentially, or motor cells, both centrally in the in the brain and the spine, and also peripherally, meaning in like the nerves that go from the spine outward into into, into the their muscles. Okay, and so you're talking about exciting research in ALS. Sorry yeah. So yeah. So in that disease process, at least, like there's very little information about how that comes about, what causes that. But so we know the symptoms. But we haven't ba- traced those symptoms back to a defect in a system or organ. And we have some understanding, like we know that there's some genetically inherited uh, conditions that lead to ALS, you know, genetically inherited genes that are associated with ALS. But like, in essence, we haven't figured out, there's no, there hasn't been this commonality approach through all this. And I think now there's been a lot of exciting research on figuring out the pathophysiology from about what happens that interface between the nerve and the muscle and also essentially in regards to clearing of a certain types of toxins or whatnot that are associated they may be associated with als and these are all still theories and works in progress but at least now we're getting a better understanding of where things are going wrong and once we understand where things are going wrong we can start creating tailored therapies for that what do you think about you know you you mentioned something and it's always a I don't know if it's a hobby horse of mine yet, but I'm curious about this concept of science being able to explain why. And I feel like sometimes the explanation is how or what, right? Like it's, it's kind of like we're describing, like what's the difference between why and how, right? I guess is the question that, that, that piques my curiosity in the sense that you can always keep going back from, to to your to your minimum baseline, right? And so you don't examine, for example, like when you're when you're examining a patient, you don't unless you're unless you're specifically looking for genetic markers, you don't look at like their ancestors, or you don't look at like their cultural legacy, or you don't look at like society as a whole, right? Um, so when we say why something is happening, really we're answering we're, the, the the question we're we're answering is what is happening, yeah. Right? And we and we get this really long list of what's as our instrumentation becomes better, right? If I don't know what my pulses, if I don't have the concept of a pulse, then, then I don't know, you know, why is a heart attack happening? You say, oh, well, because your pulse is elevated. Well, that's what's happening. Yeah. But, but why it's happening, it could be because I'm super stressed out and have been for 20 years. It could be, I have, you know, like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Is there, is there a differentiation between why and what? And I guess that for me, that's like more, it's, it's a little bit more zoomed out and a little bit more philosophical, right? Yeah. But like I, I think about like spirituality and then science, right? And science has become the paradigm by which we understand the world around us, right? And it's, and it's a whole lot of how, and it's a whole lot of what. But the why, it's almost like, you know, you ask physicists, well, why did, why did the universe, why was the universe created? Well, you know, we know that it, it was the Big Bang, right? Well, what happened before that? Well, we don't know. Maybe it was a big crunch. Well, what happened before that? And like, there, there's this limit to, to answering what, and it and it doesn't always explore. It can't by by definition of the things you can't measure. Yeah, tell you, give you a really good why, right? And so you settle on a how or you settle on a what. 
I, well, your th- I welcome your thoughts as a fellow thinking human, right? So, yeah, yeah. so I think that like the concept of why, um, so especially in biology, there's never a definitive, uh, there's never a, a law, right? There's no law in biology. Mm. And you when, mean like there is in thermodynamics, like uh, I mean physics, where you have the laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, those are fairly consistent, right? Everything, everything in what I deal with, I feel is has is a theory, right? We all this is the theory of how things are the best that we know them at this time, right? But in certain states, especially in medicine, there's always exceptions, and because there's always exceptions, it's, it makes it hard for someone to say. Um, even answering the question of what sometimes becomes very difficult. And I, so I think that from our sense, and this might be a flaw of just how we are exploring problems these days, um, is because we become so scientific about approaching things. Um, the, the what is easier to answer the, the why, the why it's, it becomes theoretical in a sense that like it, it makes the people that are answering the question either uncomfortable to answer those questions and two, they think it's so much of a th- an opinion in a sense that then at that point they feel like, well, this isn't scientific because now I've introduced my own biases into it. And that, and that makes it like, that makes it almost an invalid point. And I can think these things, but like then um, expressing them in a way that other people, I, I don't want other people to actually like um, take this into their doctrine because these are my thought processes and you might conf- in confidence share those things with people, but I think that it's important to share those those explanations of why, even if they're not absolute with people. Mm. Because once again, I think that that helps shape your thought process by explaining it. And also they're, they're able to poke holes in your thought process because you're never going to, you're probably never going to be able to develop a why answer to a lot of things. Maybe why is more of an expansive concept. Like little kids go like, why? And it's, and it's a question that will always expand the conversation. Whereas like a what and a how, you know, closes in on the answer. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's concise. It's a, it's a limiting function, right? Where we're going to reduce what to if A, then B. But why doesn't work that way, right? Why is always expanding to include additional factors, Mm -hmm. whereas what and how you do actually arrive at a conclusion that works for now until we figure out another what, right? A sub what, if you will, right? As we, as we, for example, split the atom, right? We know how does matter work? Well, it's made of what's right. We've got these molecules. We've got these atoms. Okay. We found subatomic particles. Okay. We found sub subatomic particles right and okay oh shit now we found dimensions none of that really gives us a why it just gives us a conclusive what and a how which allows us to operate very well when it comes to process development but it may not necessarily inform the, the why is much more poetic i guess maybe and unscientific in a way right like yeah i don't i, I think why was the sun formed is not a like that's a that's a religious question yeah almost, or right? spiritual or something yeah, like yeah. that it's, it's something that's um yeah i don't think that you can answer a lot of why questions without some type of uh like almost like spiritual type of thing i mean i think it's easy for religion to say why why things occur right because they, they it's in that business yeah it's that's that's, that's <laughs> what they do but from our standpoint it's like uh why things occur well 
fuck if I know sometimes like right mm. like it's like that's just the way it is and and th- I've had a lot of people like when I'm asking them questions like yeah. uh, for example like I can talk you get to a point like everyone's an expert right in, in what they're doing right and like you ask them the question of like this is this is going on so then they're able to give you an answer like this is this is what I think causes this to occur right it's how it happens how it happens type of thing like why why does um uh, but the question is always why, right? In other words, like, why do people have seizures? Yeah. And you go, oh, well, that's complicated. Yeah, and but I'll tell you how they have seizures yeah, and, and what, what we know about what's happening. really difficult to tell people, right? Like, right. you're like, well... You're possessed by an evil spirit. You it's had, a, your, you had you know, like, a brain damage. Yeah, you had yeah. A, something in, in, in a uterus, like... In your in your mom's belly that happened, in or urine, right. there there's or there's like the concept like you got you got in a car accident or something. Now it's obvious, right? Like you were you're hospitalized for three weeks and you're unconscious, and now right. you we, had, you had, we squished this part that wasn't supposed to be squished. Exactly, but now like okay, so or yeah, tumor or something like that, whatever that 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 all makes sense. But like, how do you tell the people that fifty percent of people that don't know why this occurred? How do you tell someone with ALS why is this occurring to me? Or how are you supposed to tell someone that has um, epilepsy that's going to have this for the rest of their life. How are you going to tell them that like you, this is this is what you got? We take you tell you to take medication, and then they ask you why is this occurring? It's a very common question, and to me, that's almost the most disheartening question that, when they ask that. Not because like oh man, they're they're inqui- they're asking a question I can't answer type of thing, and that it is partly that, but it's, but it's more, a metaphysical inquiry. Yeah, it's like level. I can't. There's nothing. I, I there's nothing. There's nothing I can. There's no information out here at this point in time that's going to give me allow me to give you an answer that is going to make us both happy. Like the answer is I don't know, and like people that are been doing this for a very long time still don't know, and it's going to be a while before we're ever going to. No, like it's hard enough just to treat the disease, but to tell you why that's, that's near, like that's impossible right now. I feel like maybe that's almost a, to, to posit a working theory, right? That mystery is an essential part of the human condition. Yeah. Like, and, and when I say mystery, maybe capital M, right? That the, that the question of why is almost a function of our experience in linear time. Not to get like real spacey about it. But what do you this, mean about that? Well, why is always related to trying to find a point of origin in which to explain causality. It's a, it's a, it's a causality reversal mechanism, right? It's saying I'm here. Why? Right. And what that means is like, well, because you were there and you, okay. So now you explained the previous condition. Well, why was I there previous condition? And so we always end up at some juncture of unknown complexity in the distant past, right? Which is why we rely on physics to explain chemistry, chemistry to explain biology, biology yeah. to explain spirituality, perhaps. Right. And that's where the neuroscientists are going. We can somehow define consciousness as because we've broken it down to all of these um, processes that are a lower, a layer lower in the organization of matter, right? But then you get to this fundamental physics, and all of a sudden you reach that abyss and emptiness in the in the subatomic vacuum, right? And you reach this limit of perception in time, which is to say that there may have been 
something that existed before time did. And so my point is, and this, this, this will tie back to our conversation about sensory awareness and how, and how we can only measure what we can perceive, right? And so I'm almost like saying that like what, the, the question mark is a given. There will never be some point in time that coming from an unknown that you will somehow add a bunch of things onto the unknown and resolve the equation. I understand. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was trying to explain. Sorry. No, I get that. I get that completely. Like if you don't know where you've, what, the process in which you came from, like the original point, then how are you going to even explain all this? There's always going to be a mystery of the why. Yeah. And so the parents go at some point in that questioning, they go, because. Because, yeah. Capital B. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's like a way of saying, because of like given assumption, given this, right? And then right before that given is the great unknown yeah. of we just have no clue. There's no evidence. There's just a mystery. And so my theory is that like the why is almost a fundamental law, if you will, of like being us. So one of the things you brought about was like how neuroscience is going to reveal what consciousness is. Yeah. So, okay. This is a hard problem of consciousness is stated by David Chalmers. David Chalmers, man. So speaking of that guy, he's, so he, him and a group of people have a conference every other year, every other year it's here in Tucson, every other year it's internationally. So is it happening this year? It is here in in, in Tucson. It might already have occurred or it might be occurring in the next few weeks. I'm not going to be able to go this year, but, um, telling you, like I'm talking David Chalmers is here, uh, Deepak Chopra's here, like, you know, like there's Roger Penrose, who's a world renowned physicist. Um, and there's this guy named Stuart Hammerhoff, who's an anesthesiologist who got basically got all these guys together and like creates this conference trying to explain what consciousness is. And a lot of that recently has been talking about AI. Hmm. And there's a guy named Anil Seth that was there years ago. And this guy is like working at, I think, at the University of Essex or something like that. And like, uh, England or something like that to try to explain how if is someone are we going to be able to program consciousness are we because like right if we're able to break it down right then we would be able to program it right yeah we can we can put it build it back up from its constituent parts so his thought is that because part of our existence and this is going more philosophical part of our existence is suffering right suffering is an innate part of all of our existence how we how we live it's central to buddhist doctrine yeah like exist it, we all it, are attached to something ourselves or friends or family or inanimate objects um in the existence of ego of who we are as people and then like that that allows us to experience suffering right and so like the thing is his thought process is that like anil seth is that like because we're not able to program that level of suffering into an ai or something like that we'll never know they'll never be fully conscious and and i I completely i i agree with that and not only that i don't think that we're able going to be able to figure out the little tiny intricacies of what human existence is in regards to consciousness to be able to figure that out like there's a there's a thought that says that like well, what about the fact that do you need the redness of something, right? Like the 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 quant in 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 qualia and qual and like from the qualia, like people that believe in like the redness of like a rose, for example, is you can teach someone that it's a certain type of wavelength that you're looking for, but until someone sees the color red, 
they'll never know what red is. They'll never the experience function. Of, of red, right? So quantifying something is not qualifying it. Or yeah. so you explaining can, something is fundamentally different from experiencing it. Yeah, so you can teach a robot or teach something to recognize the color red. But it's not experiencing it. But it's it. not experiencing it, so it's never going to actually know it and feel it and be conscious of that experience. Isn't the debate, though, that like at some point they're the same thing? So there is that. So there's like, like at a certain level of complexity. Yeah. So there's some people that think there needs to be like a threefold thing that occurs. One, I've experienced, I, I see red and then saying, I, I'm aware that I'm experiencing that I'm seeing red and three. Um, well, I think it's wait, hold on. So it's like, I see, red, I see red and um, I'm now experiencing that I'm seeing red. So like that, actually attaches a sense of like me myself my existence is seeing red and that's that's going to be a much harder thing to make happen i think mm-hmm. it's easy for something to recognize that it's seeing red or orange or whatever but like now to say that i recognizing that i'm even experiencing something is seeing red that that's a that's a different ball game well and, and i'm sure you could you know use a chat bot to to tell you that it is yeah but you don't know if it is Consciously doing it. So like, I think for certain reasons, I think AI is going to be very helpful in that sense because they're going to be able to, um, okay, so let's just say you have someone that's demented, right? They have Alzheimer's disease, but they're living home alone because they don't have the resources to go out. uh, And and that might be a society issue because we're not providing that for them or they don't have family or whatever to be able to help them out, right? So let's just say you have an AI creature that's able to... um, be at the be at their be at their house come to their house or live at their house give them their medications when they need to recognize when there's a medical emergency going on being able to have some type of basic conversation with this person that's not all there um to actually feel like they're empathizing with the person at that point mm. how do you recognize if that's is that not conscious what consciousness is this person's there for you when you need them they're also showing you almost in like this uh you can call it love or whatever you, they're showing they're taking care of you in such a way that it feels like love. Right. So like, what's the difference between, um, is that not conscious? We don't know a dog is conscious, but we know that the way it interacts with us over time, that it does have consciousness, right. Or like even a baby, it's not interacting with us in any meaningful way, but our interaction with it over time, we realize, Oh, well, this, this is a conscious creature. And I think that that's going to occur with the AIs. But so there's a parallel there. That's no, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, what emerges to me is a parallel between us trying to define life. Right. I remember my, you know, high school science or like intro introductory biology where they said, well, a thing is alive. Let's start here. Is it alive? And like, what does that mean? Right. And they started naming off um, the conditions, the like basic criteria for a living organism. Yeah. And it was, you know, does it uh, replicate itself, right? Does it move? Like, does it exhibit some form of agency? And, and, and I remember just being like, oh, well, that's just, that's somewhat arbitrary, right? Like, we, we put a hoop or we put a, a bar, right? Must be this tall to ride or must be able to jump over this hoop for us to consider it alive, which is why, you know, a gem isn't alive, right? Unless, you know, you're at the gem show and, and you're getting pitched real hard 
um, on yeah. a particular amethyst crystal, right? But like we've we've collectively decided that this is what alive is. Yeah. And so if we were to encounter a silicon-based life form, we would call it a life form if it exhibited those characteristics. And it seems like the same bar is set somewhere in the in the consciousness space where we're saying what is conscious and obviously it's a sound we make to describe a certain set of criteria at which point we will you know attribute consciousness to the object right and so it's like if i'm blind am i still conscious yes if i'm deaf and blind am i still conscious yes but if i have both my vision and my hearing but a certain but i'm in a coma or whatever then am I still conscious, right? Like there's no outward appearance. And yet we know from people who woke up that like, oh, well, yeah, they were conscious, right? Yeah. Under anesthesia, am I conscious? No. And so on, right? And so yeah. we've got this like criteria. And, I, and I, I don't disagree that we will reach a level of computational artifice where we can create the computational correlates to our definition of cognition to our definition of mental function, right? You can make something that remembers like people do, right? Or better. You can make something that senses um, visual or, or rather electromagnetic fluctuations in the, in the visible to us spectrum yeah. that says, oh, this thing can see, right? Um, and respond accordingly. It recognizes the way we recognize. Or like our facial expressions are... Right, and we're but we're building correlates and analogs from our departure point of what it means to be conscious, right? Like in other words, we're we're anthrop anthropomorphizing, right? Like because that's the only consciousness we know about. Yes. But like, if killer whales were telepathic, that would blow blow. We just wouldn't know what to do with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and you were, and that's what you were talking about. I want to bring it back yeah. to you were saying. An ant has a different, an antness, an ant's experience of consciousness, or uh, maybe a different example would be like a bat's sense of echolocation. Yep. A bat is blind, and yet it sees in ways that we could never imagine. Yep. My favorite example is the mantis shrimp. Mantis so, shrimp. Yeah. Tell me about that one. No, no, I was going to hand it off to you. To, oh, yeah. But so, I could definitely talk about the mantis shrimp. We'll so, so like, uh, yeah. So, like, for example, like the ant or even, even, even the bat, you know. They they have poor they have poor vision. They're not seeing. We're very we're very visual animals. Like we're visual hearing animals. That's basically our modes of modes of how we experience distance and space and whatnot. Um, but like the ant, it feels the vibrations coming through the ground, going through their skin, and when it does that, it can actually detect how far something away is from them. And the same thing with echolocation, right? It like sends out some impulse of sound, and then the amount of time it takes for it to, it to get back, then they know how far things are away from them. Uh, or how enclosed they are, or how open, or where food's at, or whatever. And so, how can we, as as people that uh, are visual animals, how, we don't understand that form of existence? So maybe our form of consciousness is different than their form of consciousness. And maybe they they've been around for a lot longer time. They work in these huge nets to create their 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 way of life. So how, how, how do we know what their conscious experience is? Because they might communicate and act differently to sensory experience than we would act to certain sensory experience based on how they've evolved. So maybe it's just that we're just have different forms of consciousness. And I don't think we'll be able to answer how to make the perfect um, AI 
um, or to artificial type of a consciousness until we gain a better understanding of what these other experiences, other conscious experiences are. Mm. Because um, if we just base it on what we do, then that's, and we say, do the best for the world around us. Make, make the best world that you can. Well, it's, it's, it's form of what best is, is going to be based on what we think is best. And that might be completely malicious and not good as we are seeing right now in some parts of the world. But if we train it that, well, now I have to account for not only the human experience, but now I have to account for a cockroach experience, I have to account for the bat experience, I have to account for the dog experience. And as I bring all this information together, now I can start creating a decision of what's best for the world because now I'm not looking at one creature that lives on, I'm looking at the whole spectrum of, of creatures. So, you know, you, you referenced an ant and I feel right there, right? Like we're talking about this definition of consciousness in relationship to an, to a, to a creature that may not have a sense of individuality period. Right. And, and we ascribe consciousness uh, when we look through the animal kingdom uh, to, to creatures that most resemble our notion of identity the individuated consciousness right the individual consciousness so like dog yeah i'll name it that's sammy right the chimp like hey that's uh, whatever that famous chimp's name was yeah right um and and we go oh well because they perceive the their world as an individual actor then that's then that's most closely correlated to consciousness whereas you can say like my city mycelial fungal networks that stretch miles right in the in the jungle floor are not conscious because there's no one thing to speak to in fact that's we sort of have an obsession about like what's the largest distributed organism that seems to maintain integrity across its function right and so um like you could say like a like a like dolphins are individuals right and they exist in a in a in a whatever flock or pack or whatever right like wolves pack mentality um elephants right have a herd but not ants right the colony is the unit it's like that's the individual creature but we have no way of making that quantum leap to really understand it and then i'll come back to the mantis shrimp in a second because i think it, it, it it really tickles this further it like unravels it a little bit so like i think that like so in like chinese kind of culture they think of all of us as one big moving organism. Like there's no, it's almost like this collective experience. And you speak about Oriental philosophy at like a very stereotypical level. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. So, um, so I, I think that I believe in something called, uh, and this, this is kind of like, there's, I think there's more that meets the eye in a way that, that there's something called the collective consciousness. And a lot of people talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there is more than that, a web that, interacts between you and uh, an invisible web in a sense between you and the in, the people around you for example like the community around you your family you're more connected than the people that may be across the world or across the galaxy and essentially um this is my thought about it and uh, we i talk about this a lot more but like there's there's a single point from uh, where the big bang is thought to have come from that one point expanded into all the matter and keeps on expanding as it is now so the parts that are kind of closer made the humans and the world that we live in, they're, they're much more, um, there's much more material that's um, the same between your and my material compared to material across yes, the galaxy. Yes. So um, in essence, 
there's a concept kind of unrelated to this called quantum entanglement. Yeah. So quantum and no, totally related to this quantum entanglement <laughs> basically says that there's particles that are entangled with each other. That meaning like you can always predict what the other particle is doing based on knowing what this particle is. Right. And it's actually, there isn't a phenomenon between them. They're fundamentally entangled across space and time. Yeah. So like they can be as far away as they are from each other and you can always predict this. So, and this is kind of a proven quantum mechanics principle now. So like you have one quark that's pointing downward, you know, the other points quarks pointing upward. So I think that in essence, we are all almost entangled because we're all made of similar particles. Mm -hmm. And because of that, um, this is what, this is what the collective consciousness essentially is. Like we're all entangled with each other. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're like t thinking about a friend or thinking about uh, someone that you, you know, and then all of a sudden they call you. And it's not because, oh, it's near their birthday or we have this certain experience at this point in time together. There's no coincidence there. All, your, this, right. all of a sudden they call you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, evidence of synchronicity. Yeah. So I think from my standpoint, I think that like there is some type of collective consciousness, even if you're not 100% aware that this is occurring. Um, or, or no, feel it at all times, we're all entangled with each other. And we're more entangled with the people that we're closer with than we are with um, an ant or something like that. And I think that that might play into that part that we were talking about, about the, the in-group and the out-group type of thing, right? We're, sure. So I, I think that there is something of a collective consciousness, and I think that that has a lot. And then I think that's based on the principle of quantum entanglement. Well, there's some intuitive, there's some intuitive um, congruence there, right? There's some intuitive like, yeah, that makes sense. And you can feel it. And I think um, I certainly have had many experiences that, that I would say are synchronous or, or point to, to that kind of phenomenon existing as perhaps a fundamental property of matter. There's a um, theoretical physicist by the name of Nassim Haramein okay. who has a whole... Uh, basically worldview and reinterpretation of classical physics um, where he departs from the normalization of the density of the energy density of the vacuum of space, hmm. right? Um, which was found to be formally infinite. So they had to normalize it so they could measure matter. And so they removed 99.999% of the energy so that they could talk about matter and he and and he's got this whole almost geometrical proof of how how it all works and it and it's very central to this so so we'll do an aside and you and i will probably watch some of that material together yeah i would love to yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love so to, yeah. so i would i would point you towards the works of nasim haramein who of course like einstein in his time was largely discredited um and looked at as a fraud or a, a, a madman, um, but, and I don't know enough science and I don't know enough physics and won't ever learn the higher mathematics required for me yeah. to validate his proofs, but his presentation and the way that he puts it together um, has just struck me. I get chills every time I, I think about his theories because it, it very much ties right back to what you just said. It's almost a hundred percent correlation with it, but he does the math for it. So anyway, um, come back to the mantis shrimp and then this notion of, not being able to adequately sense what you can't describe for yourself, right? In other words, we're modeling based off of our sensorium. So when we say colors, when you and I say colors, we mean 
the colors that we're capable of perceiving. Oh, yeah. When we say seeing, we mean the information coming from our Mark One eyeball yeah. and the visible spectrum therein. Um, that's where we exist in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, we have instruments that have allowed us to detect other kinds of things. So we've developed other organs, sensory organs, right? And the EEG is a great example yeah. of one, right? The diagnostic instrument. It's a way of feeling something. Um, so the mantis shrimp is a weird one. And there's a great oatmeal illustrated comic about this. So oatmeal mantis shrimp, if you're you know curious about seeing this cute thing. But it's basically um, like a 6 to 12 inch shrimp body with the top half of a mantis, of a praying mantis. Oh, wow. And it has certain biological outliers about it. And the three that, that seem relevant to me for the context of this conversation are, one, it has two eye stalks, and each eye has three pupils that track independently. Oh, wow. So the first thing is imagine, you know, we think about things... We have two hemispheres in our brain. We think of everything as left and right, black and white. We work primarily in dichotomies. We have a very two-dimensional way of analyzing things um, with the fourth dimension being time. So we always look at X and Y plots over time. And, and you know, the really clever plots have X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But once we get into true multidimensional analysis, we need to rely on a computer because we can't adequately, like we can't intuitively Process, figure out yeah. relationships between more than two data points, right? Um, or three. And that's because we exist there. Uh but it can focus on three individual things at once. So imagine what the consciousness is of a creature that's tracking at any at a given time. We can only focus on one thing, and then we have this stereoscopic effect. So it can stereoscopically look at three things at a time. That's weird. Yeah. And and, and Crazy. pushes the boundaries of what, what experience might be like if I could be looking at you, also thinking about the microwave. Like, we pretend to, but we're really doing serial slicing when we think we're multitasking. We're mm -hmm. not really multitasking with our conscious mind. Yeah, no, we're not. And, and so uh, the next weird thing about it, it's eyes, is that we have rods, cones, I think, right, in our eyes. Yeah. And they allow us to see the full visible spectrum of rainbows. Yeah, color and then, then black and white. Right. And then, like, dogs don't, right? And so we know that dogs see less color range than we do. And we can think of, like, butterflies that, and, and, and parrots, some of which can see into infrared or can see into uh, x-rays and they can mm -hmm. see radio waves, so to speak. Right? Don't know what that means. But, yeah. but it looks like something. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't know what it... Yeah. So it has 16 types of cells in its eyes. Oh, wow. So what is the spectrum for that? Well, we, we don't... We have no clue. Because oh, we haven't done, like, that much deep research in the mantis shrimp. But basically, like, it sees colors that we don't have names for. It can see in the infrared. It can see radio waves. It can see x-rays. I mean, it can see all sorts of shit that, like, if we could see, we'd have a completely different experience of consciousness. Yeah. And a completely different science and a completely different literature and a completely different thing of what it means to be, you know, Ganesh and Jacob on the couch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's um, nuts. That's nuts to think about. Well, think about the pigment we'd have to put into this couch. I mean, it's just a brown couch. But like, what if there was other colors? Like, it would it would be kaleidoscopic, right? Because we'd be able to see the heat imprint of yeah. you know, the phone that I set here. And maybe I set the phone here and there'd be an imprint there. And where I was sitting or when I got so I can up, see things see over my time. Time is a different concept. Like... Right. So that's the, that's the second thing that blows my mind. Um, and then the third one is physically its armor is so strong that like DARPA's researching it to see how they can make body armor. And it's got these two arms. It's got these mantis arms that crack. It kind of does like a whipping motion when it needs to, to kill something. 
and it cracks and causes photoluminescence in the water and literally like boils things inside their shell. Oh, so it'll find a snail and just like snap it and it'll crack the snail and like vaporize it. Cook it. And if we were as strong as a mantis shrimp, you could throw a baseball into orbit. No way. Yeah. Like uh, pound for pound kilonewtons or whatever, right? Like so so again, so oatmeal guy, shout out to, you know, the cartoonist who makes the oatmeal, looked at this and of course it, it you know the I'm not going to spoiler alert. I'm not going to spoil the, the punchline of the of the cartoon because it's not relevant to what we're talking about. But that for me is just evidence of mankind's huge limitations in the universe. That we think that we're the apex. You know, you talked about like, oh, we think we're at the top of the food chain because we can eat everything else. We think we're at the top of the food chain because we can build things. Yeah. Right. Um but if you look at the mantis shrimp and what its sensorium is and what it's capable of receiving, now it probably doesn't have grand designs, right? And it's not calculating fixed APR or thinking about subprime mortgage rates or, or trying to invent a spaceship to take it to Mars, right? Um, so clearly maybe deficient in that cognitive capacity or that prefrontal cortex. But its experience of the world is so radically different. And so we're so certain that we're going to figure it all out and we can't even see what's behind us. Oh, yeah. Whereas, like, the mantis shrimp can. So, I don't know, I posit that to you as, like, a fantastic example of what you're talking about when we say, well, we only are talking about what we know in the context of what we know. And that has always been proof for me that that opens up the door to this kind of mystery. Yeah. I I, so I I, Thanks for listening to that. That was a lot. That, no, that was awesome. I, I like I I I learned so much right there, and uh, that's like further proved like improves what I thought about like in respect to like we we may not be the top of everything, right? Yeah, we not be the we may not be the best, but that's okay because we all have our own we all have our own um things that we're like that we're good at, right? And that and that's how society kind of is. That's how us we are. And then speaking all that, so like there's a thought from this guy, uh, I mean, from Rene Descartes, he's like a famous mathematician, right? And he said, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and because he said that because he had this thought experiment where he'd have all these things on a table. And well, that's, quite that's an image of a mantis shrimp. That is, that's quite beautiful. I got, I'm going to look, I'm going to look up the oatmeal, oatmeal yeah. thing. Um, Back to Descartes. So, so yeah, so Descartes said basically, I think therefore I am. So he put everything on this table and he said, I'm only going to take things off the table that I can't. Uh, uh, let's just say there's this, this evil devil thing that's coming in play and he has a hold of all my senses. So what can I keep on the table based on the fact that every all my senses are obscured? And you can think about this because, um, for example, we as in, in America, we see, um, I think, seven colors in a rainbow, Roy G. Biv. Uh, right and but if you go to um, Russia they actually see eight colors in a rainbow right because they they have two colors for blue so they've been trained all their whole life to see two colors for for that blue part or Inuits have 22 shades of snow yeah exactly right so they're seeing things completely differently because they've learned things completely differently and um, so let's just say go back to the experiment experiment that experiment that he had so um, or a dog, for example, can see things differently than we do, right? They're colorblind and whatnot, so they but they can hear things differently as well. So, like, what could he prove on that was on the table? Eventually, he took everything off this table that was there, and he said that um, the only thing I can really prove is that I'm having this thought right now, so I know that I'm here. 
And so that's why he said, I think therefore I am. So, I mean, I think in a sense that the sensations that we experience are deceiving. Um, uh, they're, they're important for us to, to, to know that we're having them because they shape the experiences that we have. But sometimes reaching past the sensory experiences that we have for the things that are innate between relationships between people like love or, or whatever um, that, that is akin to that, um, those are the real true things in my opinion. Like the sensory experiences that we have, they're all kind of fake news. They're all fake mm. um, because they're all, they're all respective of the person that's experiencing them in their past experiences, right? Um, so um, like going back to that blue example or that, that snow example, right? It's based on the person that's experiencing them. Not everyone, it's going to be different. It's going to be respective to the person that's experiencing So what's it. common then? I think that's that's the big question. Like to me, the only example that I can consistently think of is this feeling of of of, and it's, it's cliche, but like love is one of those things that are innately in someone that is not based on. It may partially have been based on sensory experience, but once it moves past that, it takes a life of its own. So empathic, an empathic connection, yeah, or, or affinity, yeah, some, an affinity or that empathic connection, that feeling that you have for your family or your loved ones or whatever. That that connection, it it doesn't have anything to do with sensory experience after a certain point in time. It's just there. Well, maybe, and and you know, we're we're diving deep and we're coming up on three hours, so oh, yeah. be mindful of your time. Yeah. But the for for me that line of inquiry led me to start thinking about biological predecessors. And so, you know, um, good, bad, or indifferent about Jordan Peterson, he makes an example in his book about lobsters and dominance hierarchy, for example, right? Or, or just biological precursors to things that we take as being human. Mm -hmm. And so if you could think of affinity, right? Like, almost certainly like unicellular organisms have an affinity to reproduce and replicate or, or replicate if they do mate, whatever the smallest living thing that mates is it experiences love. It experiences this yearning for the connection with the other that's compatible with it so that it can yeah. re reproduce. And so you could say that like, yeah, you go back to love. Cause that's like, that's the first thing that makes things alive by our definition of it reproduces. Yeah. Right. It, it, so, so, you know, there, there were senses before we evolved eyes. Yeah. And, and when I say we, I mean of all living things on earth going down the yeah. genetic tree back to the like evolutionary original. chain. Yeah. Right. And so maybe that's one way to, to, to visualize it, right. Is to say like, like we're evolving senses today through our own mechanical creation. And as we unlock biotech and, and, and things like that, we'll probably even get to a place where we could, you could have an organ Right. That networks. Yeah. For example, right. You talk about BMIs and it's really just a silicon based addition of new new senses. But before we were the way that we are today, like cognition, metacognition, um, the, the experience of time and the collective memory, all of these are like micro senses. I remember I watched a show with my daughter the other day that was like beyond the five senses. And it says. Did you know you actually have, you know, like 18 senses or whatever the number was? And, it, and, it, and, and the one that struck out to me was like balance. Like you have a sense of balance. Yeah. It's not sight, touch, whatever. Yeah, proprioception. 
Right, proprioception. And, and then all of these other senses that we have um, that, that we're not even thinking about because we're not taught to think about yeah. them that way, right? Yeah. But like... No, it's crazy. It's like, <laughs> like to know where, circle. where your hand is in space, right? That's a sensation that we don't even think about. Right. Right. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. That but we then back to day. epilepsy and strokes and consciousness, right? Like yeah. take it full circle. You have people who are still conscious, but all of a sudden that part of their brain stops working. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of the brain has to be affected for that to happen? Slices of the apple back to your mentor. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be something that's so small. It could be the whole brain and it could be in a part of the brain where you're completely conscious, it, the same size, but in a part of the brain where you wouldn't even notice what's happening. Right. And that's the thing. It's like 90% of cortex. You take a, a, the, the lining of the brain where the neurons are located. You can take an electrical zapper and then basically go across the, the you know, the cortex. Like a little hammer. <laughs> yeah. And just basically like put it there and like zap it, see what happens, zap it, see what happens, do it in surgery and just kind of. Yeah, somebody it. goes, I smell rain. Yeah, exactly. And um, you can do that. And 90% of the, the time, they're not going to experience shit. Anything. Yeah. So huh. in that sense, not, it's not like we talk about. This is my big thing. It's like 90. We talk about seizure semiology, how a seizure looks. What's the first thing that they experience before they had their big convulsion or whatever. But even past that. How do you even know that's even the part, right? It could have been starting in some place that's silent and then spread that way. And by the time it's spread, that might be way past the zone that you're really looking for. You're looking at a downstream. You're, you're counting the pebbles at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. And, and the, the origin is, you know, a goat that stepped on something along the peak, right? That triggered an avalanche. Yeah. And you're counting the pebbles at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. You're... you're you're starting in this 90% and you're getting to this 10%. But by the 10 by the time the 10% is actually activated, then what you're you're already you you're already past you're already past where you need to be. Fascinating. So like to me that that's the big one of the biggest fallacies about what we do in epilepsy is because we base a lot of things on not not, not realizing, not expecting that it may be something that in an area that had no function to begin with, right? Or like had no function that we perceived to have function to begin with, right? So you're measuring the ripples on the surface of a lake and trying to find the pebble. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the best way to say it. Mm. Yeah. It's weird, but uh, I don't know. I uh, that That's a big fallacy about what we do. But uh, I think that's, that's that goes in every single field, right? Where a lot of it's a lot of unknown stuff. And then we're always honing in on that one part that we do know and then taking that for well that must be the part that started this thing and so and it's always a theory yeah it's always and that's what you're 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 putting things in people's brain based off that and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah i'm so grateful for your time hey um, thank you i enjoyed your presence you know i enjoy this a lot it's fun is there anything you want to share with our audience or if folks want to find you or connect with you, if they have further questions? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you guys want to talk more, uh, we can either do an episode like this uh, at any time, but I'm also, I'm on Instagram I'm on life without filters with a Z. So at life without filters with a Z. Yes. Well, thank you again. For thank coming you, Jacob. On the podcast. It's been fun. And I look forward to our next discussion. Yeah. It's been real. Thanks, man.